Welcome to Self Poor. I'm your host, Derek Allsweet. Self Poor is a podcast presented by The Commons in Chico, California. The Commons is a Self Poor tap room. Check us out online. My co-host today is one of the co-founders of The Commons, Byron Heatherton. Let's not waste any time on our first guest. He is at the forefront of the craft beer industry across the world. He made hops popular. He is the creator of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Mr. Ken Grossman. Is your favorite type of beer? Are you, are you a light beer guy? Do you dark? Do you do you fluctuate? Um, I fluctuate quite a bit. I I finished off last night with a barrel aged Norwell, so um, okay. sort of at the that extreme. But um, uh, no, I, I like I like hops. I like malt. Um, I can I get into sours uh, yeah. at some level, but uh, I'm mainly a hops hops forward person. Me too. Um, is it is it a is there like a seasonal aspect to it? Um, Dark beers in the winter type of thing? Uh, no. no. Um, you know, I, I, um, I drank Guinness, unrefrigerated Guinness, um, <laughs> in some third world country at about, a, it was like 95 degrees out, and everybody was drinking Guinness, and it's, it's like, it tastes pretty good, not refrigerated. And really? So, yeah. So, not really hot climate, uh, and, and it's the, the Guinness that we don't get here, uh, at least not, not regularly anymore. The foreign extra stout is is popular in really warm climates the real strong one not the guinness yeah. you get over here on draft but yeah seven percent or eight percent alcohol i've been known to drink plenty of warm sierra nevada beer mm-hmm. i'm known for for saving my beer when i pour it and don't finish it and throw it back in the fridge for some reason you can re-drink sierra nevada mm-hmm. i feel it's the only beer have you has anyone ever told you that before? Um, <laughs> I, I i've heard that yes <laughs> um all right so we'll get started uh uh with the early days um I guess my, my first question, where, where, where is your family from originally? Are they from Chico? No, I, I moved here when I was 17, 1972. Oh. Um, I had a couple of high school buddies who were a year ahead of me, and they were going to Chico State. Mm-hmm. And I came up on a bicycle tour that uh, uh, they were going to drop me off in the Bay Area to, to start a, a, a trip. And I came to Chico on the way and thought it was a cool town. and. Uh, I had just graduated high school. I'd say I was 17. It was a month, month or so after graduation, and I got a job. I walked around town and applied at all the bike shops and, and mm-hmm. uh, got a job. So I called my mom and said, I'm not coming back. I'm, I'm moving to Chico. So what, uh, where were you born, and where did you go to high school? Uh, um, born in uh, downtown L.A. or near downtown L.A. Uh-huh. I went to high school out in the valley, uh, in San Fernando Valley, Woodland cool. Hills. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I lived down there for six, seven years. Done it. Went to tap tie. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, what um, what kind of a what kind of a kid were you? Were you uh, were you kind of quiet and smart? Were you rambunctious? I was uh, super rambunctious. Okay. Um, got into <laughs> lots of trouble. Um, really. Was into all sorts of things. Yep. Um, and uh, was pretty wild. Is there, uh, is there is there is there any story that you can tell us from? From back Boy, in the day? there's lots of stories. <laughs> um, if if I was drinking beer, I'd, I'd get into some later. But um, sure. um, no, I was into mini bikes and go karts and um, uh, bicycling and mountaineering. I had a neighbor who was a, a Sierra Club guide, and uh, he took all the neighborhood kids up uh, backpacking when we were young, and so got the yes. love of the mountains. And uh, he was a cyclist also, and um, he was. Uh, a home brewer, and this was uh, um, something he started when he was in college um, in the 50s. He started making a, a little bit of beer, and then um, 
he took took it to the next level. So back in the late '60s, uh, when when I started and and he started, um, I said a number of years before that, uh, he got into all grain brewing. He got into you know yeast culturing, and um, he was making beer, wine, sake. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a little kid growing up, I would be you know in his house as his son and I moved to Chico together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were best buds from elementary school, and Dad was always brewing something. So you, so you were around that as a kid? Yeah, yeah. Started at like age six or seven. I was around fermenting uh, carboys of uh, of all sorts of things. Were you uh, tasting it? Uh, I started to <laughs> taste a little bit. Yep. And so um, and he was like, "Stay out of my stuff. Go brew your own." So. Um, <laughs> How did your parents feel about that? Um, you know, they were science experiments, and, and uh, okay. I, I sort of hit them away. Um, yeah. So I had a carboys in my closet, and um, I started brewing um, at a pretty young age. And wow. did it for a number of years before I moved to Chico um, and came up here with my home brewing supplies and ended up enrolling in Butte College at the old campus, so in Durham. Started going there in 73. Mm-hmm and uh, started studying chemistry and continued to make beer at home and then eventually uh, opened a homebrew supply store in downtown Chico in uh, 1976. So, I mean, you are you had a pretty clear vision of what you wanted to do. Well, I mean, it was started out as a hobby and it, yeah. it, it you know evolved into a, a profession. And well, and take, you know, taking the chemistry or yeah. chemistry um, major too. Um, one, well, of the, I did. one of the things that, sorry, one of the things I noticed when I opened up the book is you... You, as a kid, you like to tinker around with, yep. you know, pull things apart, put it back together, and obviously that was a, you know, a big thing with with building the brewery. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, it's unfortunate we don't have as many um, trade kinds of skills that um, we show junior high and high schoolers. But back at in my early years, and our junior high had a foundry. Uh, it had a machine shop, a small engine class, um, you know, wood and crafts mm-hmm. and those kinds of, of shops as well. Um, so I got a, a, a taste of uh, welding and fabricating and running a lathe and all that right. in junior high. And then I ended up buying a, a welder as one of my teenage um, presents from my mom. So I started welding at home and um, had always had a, a love of, of tinkering and taking stuff apart and trying to put it back together. And when I moved to Chico, uh, I said I got a job in a bike shop. I'd worked in a couple of bicycle shops in L.A. Um, when I was growing up uh, to give me some money when I was in high school. And so uh, working with my hands, and um, I was rebuilding Volkswagen um, um, engines on the side as a, a little bit of income for people I knew and um, buying and selling a few cars and rebuilding them. I'm kind of curious because I so I... I grew up in the Chapman Town area, mm-hmm. and so speaking of bikes, um, I, I lived right off of Ricky Court. And prior to the brewery being there, there was these hills and jumps and stuff back there behind mm-hmm. what is now, I, I believe, part of the campus this year in Nevada. Yep. Uh, so, what uh, what was it about that area that kind of you, you know why did you want to start the brewery there? So, so the brewery started actually on Gilman Way, which is right, right. across from you know where the Enterprise Record is uh, today. It's right. called something different now, but. Um, we were there and realized we needed to find a permanent home. We were just renting a metal 3,000 square foot building to, right. to brew in. And uh, so I went to Germany and, and got a used brew house as part of our plan to expand and actually had it stored um, right over here for a little while, yeah. uh, right be- behind here. Um, and 
uh, started looking for sites and the, the city of Chico doesn't have a lot of manufacturing zone sites and we needed to be in back then anyway what was called a light manufacturing zoning and um, the city actually steered us to that area so out on 20th Street there used to be two soda bottlers uh, right. Royal Crown Cola and 7-Up uh, were side by side and and they'd moved from Park Avenue to the um, Seven Up bottler was just right down the the road here, um, and they had moved and built uh, those those areas. I think probably in the early '70s they both moved out there. And the city said, you know, here's where the bottlers are going in town. You know, why don't you look out there? And this was before the overpass was built and before the mall, and so right, it was pretty, right. you know, the edge of town kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and we looked actually uh, at the old um, Chico Brewery building. Um, um, right on um, Broadway and 9th, uh, between 8th and 9th is was where the old Chico Brewery was. Hmm. And uh, I thought about that, and the city said, no, you can't go there. Um, and we had actually even done a little structural analysis of the building, and um, it, it was where the bike shop I worked in had been uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Pullen right, right. Cycle was on that side back in that era. Uh, but so the city sort of said, go out. You know, go out out of town further and, and sort of push this out this way. So, you get started. I mean, a, what, how much of a like entrepreneur were you? Like, were you were you kind of hungry to grow this business as big as possible at the beginning? Like, what was your mindset in terms? Of, um, you know, I've still got my original business plan, and it's uh -huh. highly flawed. Um, <laughs> it it, uh, it showed uh, you know making a living at. 2,500 barrels a year. Actually, showed making a living at 1,500 barrels, and if we could expand to 2,500, we would have a, a viable ongoing business, at least on paper. Mm -hmm. And once we started brewing, um, we, we realized that the you know costs were much higher. The uh, you know there were always things that you needed to spend money on that wasn't in the business plan, and so yeah. we um, realized we better grow or we're going to go out of business. And just a, a little bit of, of historical perspective. So, um, 1976, 1977, New Albion opened. Um, and between um, that time and 1981, um, and we started the business in 78. So, our mm -hmm. business plan, we rode and, and started building equipment in 1978. And the Industry at that point was comprised of uh, 43 brewing companies in America. That was total. 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 That's Anheuser Busch, Miller, Coors, Strohs, Pabst, and uh, the handful of little guys. And so, we were part of uh, of a group of, of six uh, that opened between when New Albion opened in 1981 and. By that point in time, um, a number of the breweries that had opened up in in seventy. 8, 79, 80, had already gone out of business. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the Bacher Brewery in Novato had closed. Uh, Cartwright up in Portland had closed. New Albion uh, closed. This is by 1981. Um, and there was us, uh, Boulder Brewing Company, um, and River City uh, in Sacramento. And that's uh, who survived that first uh, startup wave. And, you know, the, the problems were numerous for, you know, uh, all of us, uh, we were all you know, very undercapitalized. We didn't have any money. Um, there was no real market for craft beer. Uh, right. People really? didn't. People didn't. Well, people didn't know what craft beer was. I mean, Fritz had done a a, a pretty good job with the Anchor Brewery, Fritz Maytag, 
uh, at establishing that American beer could be premium priced and could be distinctive and interesting. But up until that point, um, you know, American small brewers were brewing uh, the same kind of beer that the big brewers were. So they were making light lager styles and trying to compete against the, the big brewing companies. Um, and, you know, they didn't have, um, you know, the budget. They didn't have money to reinvest. And, and these breweries had been around since before Prohibition and had survived Prohibition making, you know, soda or malt extract or doing mm-hmm. something nefarious. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> And they were, um, you know, after Prohibition, they didn't have a lot of money to reinvest in their companies, and so their equipment was old and antiquated. And so those small brewers that were in America back in the 60s and 70s weren't making interesting beer. They were Mm -hmm. sort of chasing where the the big brewers' trends had gone, which is lighter and lighter beers. So were you thinking that, were you like, incredibly excited that this this vision for this you know new kind of market and opportunity or were you a little more humble and pragmatic and like i don't know if this is going to work out i was terrified um yeah uh because they're they're really you know as i said half of the of my peers had gone out of business within a couple years and so uh you know part of the reason why some of them went out of business new albion is a prime example is their their business model was even more flawed than ours so they were brewing a barrel and a half of beer uh, at a time so 45 gallons per batch uh-huh. and they were bottling it by hand with a, uh, a gravity wine filler and they were you know bottle conditioning like we were doing um, but the volume was just so small and the labor was just so high that there was not enough money to survive mm-hmm. on and they weren't weren't able to raise any more money to expand um, and if uh, you know, 1978, 1980, those years, that's when interest rates went to 18 percent. Um, you know, money was really tight. Um, you know, if we were able to borrow money, which we weren't, mm-hmm. we probably couldn't have paid it back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the financial crisis that was happening back um, in the late 70s and early 80s um, sort of wiped out, um, you know, the appetite for investors to put money into businesses like that. So what'd you do? How did you survive? How did you? Uh, well, borrowed money from family and friends, and and became super resourceful. So um, you know, we were using uh, returnable bottles, and we had a bottle washer. I was charging a nickel deposit on the, the glass, and when we would run out of bottles, I'd go to behind the Mexican restaurants, Casa Lupe, and a few others, and go dig through the dumpsters and and use Mexican beer bottles. Um, the long necks, <laughs> long necks were pretty close to bar bottles. And, and uh, we'd wa- wash the labels off and refill those. Um, and so we just uh, sort of struggled to, to you know, make ends meet and to grow. And so we steadily grew um, from you know, opening the brewery in 1980 until 88 when we moved to 20th Street. Where, where did you distribute to? Started out years? Chico only, self-distributing. And then uh, as we had a little more capacity, we went to the Bay Area um, through uh, beer distributors, and then we went to Portland and Boulder, Colorado, and um, we we just picked some markets that were more progressive. Um, so the distribution in Chico was just enough to kind of that got us started. Yeah, and uh, then as we added a little bit of capacity, so that I think for our first six or eight months we were only in Chico, um, and then we went down to the Bay Area uh, soon thereafter. That, that seems like a pretty quick kind of expansion. Well, again, we had, 
there weren't a lot of consumers. Um, you know, the craft beer yeah. had was not a thing, and so you know we had LaSalle's, and I mean there were three or four bars in Chico that put our beer on, and a few restaurants, and uh, and we did, we couldn't afford six packs, so we were individual bottles. Um, out of grocery stores? Uh, individual bottles everywhere, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The 12 ounce or 24 ounce? That was a 12 ounce. 12 ounce, yeah. individual bottles. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we, you know, getting a, a run of six packs printed was like $10,000, and that was right. 10000 more than we had. So, what what did back then, what did a single bottle sell for? <laughs> 85 cents. 85 cents. 85 cents. So, uh, yeah, and we got, uh, what, 62 cents of that, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you know we didn't do any market research. We just picked what we thought was sort of the the imports we were competing against, and that's about what a bottle, uh, a individual bottle, sold right. for. So no no kegs yet. At this no point? kegs. We started out draft only. And uh, it, again, if you go back to 1980, there were no specialty bars like this. Right. Um, you know the the closest thing was um, an Irish pub theme kind of bar mm-hmm. in the Bay Area that might have a dark beer or two and and you know, maybe harp lager i don't know if it was around even then but uh, you know they might have a couple of handles but most bars had you know one or two domestic light beers on draft and that was it and so yeah. getting um, a bar to take you uh, on was tough and then if you um, and some of those of those out there who grew up in Chico would know that, uh, like during Pioneer days, oh, yeah. uh, kegs used to sell for at least here like twenty eighteen dollars or twenty dollars <laughs> a keg right. for a half barrel, um, and they were used by a lot of brewers sort of as a loss leader. They figured if your brand gets established on premise in a restaurant or or a bar, uh, then it's a good um, sales uh, tool to right. drive somebody to a grocery store to go buy it. Um, so breweries sold their draft beer almost at cost, and hmm. uh, you know, for us to try to survive off of uh, you know a thirty dollar keg you know, would have been you know we, we would have failed immediately. So we didn't do draft until there became a, a number of specialty uh, beer bars, uh, primarily in the Bay Area, uh, who would then have multiple handles, and and we could get on, on tap, and we could charge uh, enough money that we could um, at least cover costs. Do you do you remember the name of the bar that was the first one in, in the Bay Area? To well, we were. Uh, I, I, there's there's a number of them, but the, probably the most important one was Chez Panisse, the restaurant okay. in Berkeley, um, who put our beer on quite early, and uh, they were a progressive, you know, California cuisine yeah. uh, restaurant that was really. Are uh, they still around? Uh, they're still around. Yep. Uh, really a, a trend-setting restaurant, and so other restaurateurs would go there and, and see that you know one of the only draft beers they have is here in Nevada, and so that was you know just a huge um, PR uh, angle for us to to use that um, you know look our beers at Chez Panisse and and they're they're the ones who are making waves in the food scene. Was was that interaction did that influence the reason why you opened the Torpedo Room in Berkeley? Oh, no, I think uh, we just, um, we wanted to be down in the Bay Area, and Berkeley seemed like a, we we had a good relationship with with our uh, wholesaler down there, and um, we we figured it was a a place to plant a flag. So did you, so that must have felt like when you got into that restaurant there in Berkeley, did 
Well, did it feel like you had taken some type of different step in the business? Well, the you know we were starting to gain some traction, I guess, and, yeah. and get some exposure, and and there started to be beer festivals and articles written in newspapers and magazines, and and actually one of the big uh, turning points was also an article that came out in the San Francisco Examiner Sunday um, magazine section of the huh. newspaper, and uh, you know they used to do a glossy. Um, you know, 30 or 40 page um, insert magazine yeah. and we were on the cover of that and got uh, wow. the, the beer that's making Chico famous was the headline and, and uh, we got this huge PR uh, push from that or huge uh, sales push um, and at that point in time we were also starting to distribute in a couple of the grocery chains in the Bay Area um, and those two things together uh, made it so we couldn't keep up so we were at full capacity uh, and that's when I went to Germany and bought the uh, copper brewing equipment and uh, tried to do a big expansion back then and, and yeah. couldn't come up with the money to do it. So the equipment actually sat in storage for about four years um, while we continued to grow uh, the volume with our, our little equipment I had built myself. And um, we started brewing more and more brews a day and you know through the weekends and around the clock. and. Um, got up to over 10,000 barrels uh, on Gilman Way before we moved to 20th Street. How did, did you feel, how, how did you change, I guess, during that process? Did you, I mean, as, as you can see, your business growing and maybe there's, you know, there's no end in sight to it. Like, do you, do you become a different person in a way? Are you, are you, are you different focuses, different needs? Nah, well, I mean, my focus ended up being on, on making more beer. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was... Uh, you know, I started out doing all the brewing and all the bottling myself, and then uh, as we grew, um, I started focusing more on you know trying to figure out how to to you know make more beer so we could sell more beer so we could make enough money to survive. Yeah. So it became a uh, you know I, I wouldn't say we chased uh, we we had one one salesperson. Uh, mm -hmm. for many many years um, he, sadly he passed away but oh, okay. um, his uh, uh, argument because we were like reluctant to expand too far and, and um, okay. the you know the window of opportunities would pop up where a distributor would reach out and say uh, I mean I'm selling wine and you know, we had a uh, Washington DC I'm bringing boutique wines from California can I take some beer so we started to get some distribution that was, uh, you know, called high spotting, but, you know, just small little pockets of receptive um, um, consumers and, and retailers and, and distributors. Um, and so we didn't have a national plan, but we were opportunistic when we had a little extra beer, we would go into a new market. Right. And, and he felt strongly, and it was at the time a wise move, that we need to sort of get into the marketplace why people really want our beer. So if they want it, let's figure out how to provide it for them. And so we grew that way uh, for many, many years, just sort of uh, as, as we would get a little more money, we'd buy another tank, we'd make a little more beer, we'd mm. then open a new market, make a little more money, buy another tank. So we grew very slowly that way, but um, steadily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, you, you know, you're, you're networking more now at this point, you're kind of reaching out to more people. Are, do you like that? Um, you know, I, I was uh, for many, many years pretty focused on just, um, you know, building the, the business. And um, so I didn't do as much traveling um, like with wholesalers and, and doing events. I, I did th those early on and then uh, after 
you know, I realized I needed to stay focused on, on figuring out how to survive the next few years and mm-hmm. to grow to a point where we had enough cash flow to, to do the next phase of expansion. So I said we, it took us about four years to, to grow the Gilman Way business enough where we could finally then borrow money because we weren't able mm-hmm. to borrow any money before then. And that was, and once you were able to do that, that's, that's when... Uh, that's when we moved on way. to 20th Street, but gotcha. it, we were still, you know... Uh, um, I, I spent the whole year before, um, you know, refurbishing the copper brew kettles and rebuilding bottling equipment, and we still didn't have the money to buy new equipment or not much of it anyway. Um, yeah. So that was it. Took a few years before we didn't have to refurbish old stuff. Yeah. Um, and then when did you? When did you? Is that when you started distributing out of out of state, or were you doing that before then? I'd say we did a little bit of that, um, almost from our second year. Okay. Um, but it was you know not a a, a strategy of we're going to blanket mm-hmm. the country or anything. It was you know Boulder's a cool town. They they're starting to drink craft beer. Let's go there. Yeah. And, um, where where so where did you expand to once you moved over to Twentieth Street? Um, we started Kept going further east. Yeah, yeah we started going further east and started filling in a lot of the gaps. And, and at that point, you know, that was um, the late '80s. Craft beer was starting to be understood a little bit, and um, people but one just like magazine write-ups and stuff. I mean, was yeah. yeah. I mean, this is pre no internet, you know, pre, so. pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I tell people that you know when, when I was looking for used equipment in the late '70s, I would go to the phone company. And they had yellow pages from around uh, all the the states, and I would go through the yellow pages looking for uh, old, uh, you know, dairy equipment or soft drink equipment or whatever. And then I'd you know get on the phone and call somebody up saying, you know, I understand you've got an old um, soda bottling um, operation. Do you have any old equipment? Or mm-hmm. I'd go to dairy towns and. Go to the feed store and and go ask the the feed store manager if he knew where any any old dairies were around mm-hmm. the area, and they'd say, "Oh yeah, go up to so and so's place. He he used to have a tank and some pumps." And and uh, so I drove around California, Oregon, yeah. up into Washington, doing that. Cool. So um, maybe it's a good time to fast forward into the uh, to the future. We can skip a decade or two here. Okay. Um, it's twenty twenty one. As a consumer, you know I've noticed. You guys are branching out now even beyond craft beer. Um, we have a couple kombuchas here. Actually, we can taste right now. Strange Beast. So Strange Beast is the name of your kombucha line? Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, what do you got there, Byron? <clears throat> so this is actually my favorite. This is the watermelon. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Byron and, and Brian, they come in here quite a bit. But uh, I, And I don't know if this statistic is true, but... They said that we are the number one selling Strange Beast bar in the country. Uh, I, I do all the, I curate all the all the beer here. I'm I'm kind of the beer nerd out of the out of the partnership here. But we're bringing in six of these kegs a week. Well, this stuff sells really really well. Yeah. Um, I, I love it. We drink a ton of it. A lot of our fitness folks are super super into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's just it's just it's really good. Um, it probably is top three bestseller every single month here. Great. Um, so I, I think uh, kudos to you guys for kind of branching out and and, and jumping into that. Um, yeah, we we uh, you know we're we're uh, 
scientists and artists, our um, <laughs> uh, brewers are, and, and um, you know, the kombucha was an interesting challenge uh, for us. Um, and I went to uh, Kombucha Con. There's such a thing. Um, that rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> several years back, uh, just to sort of understand the, the category. And, you know, kombucha production back then was like I remember um, both home brewing and the beginning of the craft brewing industry. Uh, a lot of people who, you know, had desire but not a lot of knowledge. And um, So you're talking like back in the, the 70s? Um, uh, I, kombucha production a few years ago was similar to how gotcha, uh, the gotcha. craft beer right. brewing world was where you know people didn't understand uh, the science at a high level a lot of people you know just wanted to to get into the um, to the category but uh, there wasn't as much information or knowledge um, uh, around about you know how to make um, great kombuchas versus how to just you know take a scoby from your neighbor and and to make a batch of, of kombucha so we dug in uh, to the science side of, of brewing kombucha so we analyzed all the different cultures that were um, being used around the world we uh, partnered with uh, Oregon State um, and there's a lady up there who was working on her PhD in kombucha that's uh, her, her thesis is on the kombucha cultures uh, and so we partnered with with them and they uh, uh, you know, worked with us to craft our own SCOBY, so uh, we assembled the yeast and bacteria we wanted um, uh, to produce the kinds of, of acids that are, um, give it uh, the acidity. A lot of, uh, you know, kombuchas are pretty heavy in acetic acid, um, and um, we didn't prefer that flavor, so we, uh, we use a different kind of uh, bacteria that produces um, uh, different kinds of acids that are more pleasantly flavored. What, what, what's a SCOBY? Uh, it stands for a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. Okay. Um, <laughs> and or yeast and bacteria. Um, and that's how um, kombucha is produced. So it's uh, the um, alcohol is formed during the fermentation process and there's certain bacteria that break those alcohols down into acids and that's what gives you the acidity and you know, most kombuchas that people are familiar with are considered non-alcoholic. They're you know, right. theoretically below a half percent. Right. Um, some of them creep above that, but but producing alcohol is part of the of the process of making kombucha. So it's a fermented tea um, that has uh, say both bacteria and yeast that work together to take alcohol, produce alcohol, and then convert alcohol into acids. Now, and did you like kombucha? Because I remember being introduced to it maybe like you know at 10 years ago or so yeah. when people were drinking were you drinking a bit yep. yeah okay and, and you know some of them i liked a lot more than others right. and and uh and i found some i really liked and um those were sort of the acid character that we um you know wanted in our kombucha other than the more vinegary um styles had you ever tasted one with alcohol in it before more a, a, a higher I, I had tasted some with alcohol in it yeah. okay okay so that uh, but okay because I had never seen, I'd never seen it with a higher alcohol percentage until yeah. you guys made it. Uh, there's a few other. San Diego uh, sort of was where the hotbed of, of alcoholic kombucha started. Oh, out. So okay. Yeah, oh, and we have a few others. Yeah, yeah we, we started with Boochcraft. Boochcraft and Junchine. Yeah. Oh, that's right. There. That's right. Right. And we uh, we have a good friend who's actually from Chico. He, he uh, works for Flying Embers out of Ojai Ventura. Mm -hmm. We have theirs. Um, we, we bring theirs in as well. Um, but again, like you said, I think the... Uh, what you guys have, I mean it's definitely more distinguished it's, it's definitely different than 
the mainstream mm -hmm. hard alcohol kombucha is it yeah that's the, why I like this. most of the kombucha cultures also contain uh, Britannomyces right. uh, which is uh, a type of yeast that um, winemakers uh, fear um, <laughs> uh, Brett gets uh, uh, into wood and gets into the floors and the ceilings right. and and it's very it's a very very hardy yeast strain uh, and it can survive for years and so uh, it has the characteristic of sort of leather or horse sweat or you know people describe it <laughs> describe it different ways delicious but it, 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 it can have a funky character it can also be managed um, and there's lots of different strains of botanomyces as well um, and some are more pleasant than others but uh, it will continue to um, reduce the uh, residual extract in beer or wine and change the character uh, potentially for years. And uh, so to have Britannomyces wild in a brewery is not a good thing because um, it is a hearty yeast. And it's it's not that it's hard to kill, but it, it is very uh, um, uh, tough as far as uh, surviving um, outside of its environment. And so we didn't want Brett in our SCOBY. So that was one thing that we did not include when we were putting together the right. yeast and bacteria. Uh, but it's found in 80%, in I think, of the kombucha cultures that are out there. Was, um, is kombucha the first non-beer that you've produced? I can't recall um, you guys yeah, doing that cider we've produced, sour. We, we've, we've played around with uh, ciders and, and uh, other uh, beverages on a limited scale. And we, we, our R&D group is uh, always um, innovating and brewing stuff. So we've, we've done uh, quite a bit of, of uh, experimental brewing. Not much of it makes it into the marketplace currently, but hmm. uh, we do play around with a lot of different fermented beverages. Right. Yeah. I, I guess one thing that we've we've kind of mentioned this to Brian and, and Byron is the cool thing about our system here is if you guys ever do want to introduce some stuff kind of slowly into the marketplace, which we've kind of done obviously with, with strange beasts and whatnot. Well, we had the uh, hard seltzer too. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. And I think we're, you guys have teas coming out. Yep. Yeah. So I think oh, that's, that's right, something that's right. that we're planning on doing yep. fairly yeah, so, soon. But um, so it's, I mean, our, our concept here is kind of a, kind of lends itself well to slowly getting into the marketplace mm -hmm. with with some of these yeah, i mean uh, you know who would have thought uh, three or four years ago that seltzer would be such a thing <laughs> it's it's um, you know it, it uh has got the appeal of low lower carbs lower calorie right. you know it's just basically you know flavored alcohol and and um and water and, and you know most of it is produced by fermenting sugar um and uh, filtering any flavor out and then sort of doctoring up the flavor with so we're, we're looking at, you know, if we're going to do it, we, we want to raise the, the category a, a little bit and do something that's more Sierra Nevada-ish. Um, right. So we're experimenting with a variety of... Yeah. I mean, we've, so so we've... Obviously, you guys have tapped into the hard kombuchas, the teas, the seltzers. What's what's kind of next on the horizon? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's hold on until we get to hop forward. Part. Okay. Yeah, I just have... Wait, we'll edit that out. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, uh, I guess I, I just want to talk about North Carolina a little bit before mm -hmm. we kind of get into yeah, what Byron is asking. Um, how long ago did you begin even speaking about uh, uh, expanding over there? Uh, so going back m many, many years, actually, probably mid-2000s, we started to you know, question our long-term strategy of, of brewing everything in Chico and shipping nationwide. And we, you know, ship refrigerated uh, for product quality uh, reasons to, you know, everywhere outside of California. And so 
refrigerated transport from Chico to New York or Florida or Texas or you know, further small uh, communities around the country is really expensive. And when we had fuel surcharges would hit, uh, sometimes we'd be paying $5 a case to, to ship the beer, and that was all of our profit. And so huh. we, we started to realize that, you know, this it, at some point is not going to make sense. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with energy costs and the carbon footprint aspect of it was also a concern. Um, so we we started talking about it in the probably early 2000s. And then uh, finally in 2010, we were pretty much at capacity in the Chico Brewery. And it's like, okay, do we spend a bunch more money and do another expansion? Or do we look at sort of uh, starting what would be a, a, a greener business model of brewing on both coasts? And made the call in 2010 that, you know, let's build a, a brewery elsewhere and then started to search for the sites. And um, we started out with a list of about 200 potential cities um, <laughs> from the Colorado Rockies east. We mm. sort of looked, you know, everywhere from Ohio and Pennsylvania and Virginia. You actually, you went on location at 200 uh, um, different <laughs> No, we started out with that <laughs> okay. list, and then uh, I did send some of my team, started going out when we got the list whittled down to a little under 100, um, and then we whittled it down further, eliminated some, and then um, our senior leadership team went out on the road um, in 2000, um, probably uh, 11 and looked at about 10 sites mm -hmm. and then we narrowed it down to a half a dozen and um, then my family went out and we went to you know schools and communities and and um, my my son had agreed to, to move wherever we were going to build so he was you know uh. Uh, very uh, interested in where he was going to have to live yeah and, yeah and, yeah uh, <laughs> so, right? yeah brian yeah so um we Ended up breaking ground in 2012 uh, at the site in uh, outside of Asheville. I've, I've been there. Yeah, we've got 200 acres there, over 200 acres, and uh, we're right along a river. The, I don't know if our lower park area was open. Oh, yeah, we, okay. we, did, we did everything. Yep. I mean, there was a band there. I mean, it's yep. a fantastic amphitheater. Yep, I mean, it. it's just incredible. Yeah, so Pre-COVID, we would get uh, close to three-quarters of a million people through there a year. No um, kidding. Yeah. There are challenges operating, you know, on two coasts and, and mm -hmm. all that. But, um, you know, the freight savings were, were significant. And, um, you know, we're, um, we're at about uh, almost the same volume at both breweries now. Really? Yeah, so um, 600,000 barrels roughly each. It's a good decision. What, yeah. what, uh, what, do you, what beers do you brew out there that you don't brew here? Because I know we've gotten, like, a... Sierra Vesa, I think it is. Is that what you guys brew out there? Um, we do a variety of uh, Chico brews more variety because uh, we've got um, a ten barrel brew house here that's really set up for innovation brewing. Right. Uh, in Mills River, we've got a twenty barrel brew house um, that's right in the restaurant that uh, right. they brew primarily. Well, you saw that, yeah. So they brew primarily for on premise there, but they do product development as well. We've okay. got a, a team out there. And we're just putting in three-and-a-half-barrel brew houses in both breweries as well. So we'll have right. a, a state-of-the-art three-and-a-half-barrel that's identical at both sites so that we can work on uh, recipe development and new product development um, in parallel. Right. So our, our head of, uh, of the innovation brewery in Chico, um, uh, Scott Jennings, he moved out there in 2012 when we broke ground. And so uh, he's the head brewer. He was the head brewer out there. He's now in charge of the innovation um, team out there. That's 
exciting. What, how, how, how different, how much different is the water chemistry out there in terms of the brewing process? <laughs> so the water out there is super soft. Um, the, uh, there's actually a, a number of pharmaceutical companies that have located in the area because of the, the water is almost like distilled water uh, uh, coming out of the, of the mountains. So is that so soft? Just means it's like less contaminated. It has no no, no minerals. Right. Okay. So it's it's like uh, you know close to distilled water. Huh. So it's it's um, uh, those of you who I guess know brewing waters, it's it's like Pilsen water, very close to yeah. uh, soft as Pilsen, yeah. uh, about thirty parts per million total hardness. Um, and so we have to add some minerals to it to harden it up because minerals are needed for the brewing process, right. calcium yeah. particularly, but a little bit of magnesium and zinc and uh, other things uh, the yeast needs for nutrients and then calcium is required for both the yeast as well as uh, clarifying uh, uh, the calcium binds with protein so there, there's a lot of things that minerals play a role in in brewing. The Self Core Podcast presented by the Commons in Chico, California is available on Spotify and Apple. I'm sure we'll be on Google and Stitcher and everything else soon. You can go to our website at thecommonschico.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Commons Chico. We are at 2412 Park Avenue. Oh, pizza as well. We just built a pizza kitchen. It's delicious. So come have pizza and beverages. All ages. Bring the whole family. Now let's get back to this awesome conversation with Ken Grossman. Can you say what the other city was that you that, that was second place? <laughs> um, so um, we whittled it down, uh, and Asheville, or North Carolina, was not on the list um, in the beginning. And the reason why, uh, we had a, a bunch of criteria. So we were looking for um, you know, adequate sewage treatment capacity, looking for good water. We were looking for a good workforce. We were looking for you know, uh, reasonable state taxes. We were looking for... Um, uh, freeways and railway access to uh, the markets we were trying to serve from the East Coast. So we, we had all this uh, criteria when we were doing our city selection. Uh, but one of the things we, we put in there was we don't want to uh, move into another brewery's backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we felt that, uh, you know, if Sierra Nevada came into, uh, you know, the same town where one of our competitors were, uh, or a, a strong local brewery was that that would be viewed potentially as you know uh, as we're we're you know big and coming into their community. So we um, we eliminated um, a lot of cities or at least a lot of, of areas that had a, a, an established strong brewery in the community. And Asheville had about ten breweries at the time. Uh, only one of them was of any size. Everybody else was was really brew pubs. Uh, so um, Highlands Brewery. And um, so we just eliminated it, and we were looking about 100 miles away in Tennessee, in the the town of really, uh, yeah, of right over the Smokies. Yeah. So it was uh, yeah, geographically about 100 miles from Asheville, um, and the town of uh, Maryville, and Mar- um, Alcoa, um, and cool cool community. We had a, a great site. Um, all ready to go. They had already put all the utilities and infrastructure in. It was the beginning of a big business park that was, uh, they hadn't um, sold any land yet, so we would be their first anchored tenant. And they were making us a, a, a pretty nice deal on um, you know, free sewage treatment for a period of time. Hmm. And um, 
know, there were there were some mm-hmm. perks thrown in to try to entice us. Right. So we had a site there. We had one in Virginia. Um, uh, we had had one in Pennsylvania, which we crossed off the list. And um, um, so there were a handful. I'd say between Virginia and Tennessee were the the two yeah. contenders at the end. And then I woke up one morning like, I don't know if I want to move to Tennessee. <laughs> and, and, and so, so I, I said, let's look at Asheville. As we and, all do and, when we wake up in the morning. Yeah, uh, so we went back and looked at Asheville, and I, I called up the Brewers Guild, the Asheville Brewers Guild, and said, uh, I'd like to come out and speak to all the brewers. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about locating here. And they said, great. They be, did? Yeah, that'd be wonderful you came here. Uh, we could turn, you know, Asheville into the Napa Valley of beer on the on the east coast and so we were welcomed with open arms and um you know we've we've uh, enjoyed the community and the reception's been great and you know we try to be good uh, neighbors and uh, you know we do have you know more sophisticated lab facilities than than uh, most small brewers have so we've you know we we help out um the, oh. the craft community out there uh, so we announced, and then Oscar Blues announced, and then New Belgium announced, and so um, all, all of us ended up. Uh, uh, Oscar Blues is a little out of town there in Brevard, and um, New Belgium uh, built right downtown in Asheville. No kidding. And so yeah. so uh, has it just been kind of an environment of we're, we're in this together, and this is okay? What's good for uh, um, one is good for all, or yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> is there any contention between anyone? Here? Uh, we're, we're still all all uh, friendly. Um, okay. The uh, you know the community uh, around there was you know artsy and outdoorsy and you know crafty and and sort of you know all the things that uh, you know sort of craft beer mm-hmm. is is about um, uh, is in those communities and and so I think it was just uh, you know. It's a great place to mm-hmm. get a lot of tourism. They get a lot of you know visitors from the East Coast, um, so I think everybody probably just liked the vibe of, of yeah. that area, um, and it's it's worked out. Neat. How about going back to the beginning when there were only forty three breweries in the country, um, and you said some kind of didn't survive that that initial wave. Yep. Were you were you friends with a lot of those uh, owners as well? Yep, very, very, uh, and I'm still friends with many of them that are that are still in the business. Um, yeah, so the 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 wasn't so much the craft community, but the brewing community, you know, has generally supported uh, each other. At least the right. the production and and brewers uh, get along, and so you know we've been involved and in, in active in the American Society of Brewing Chemists, the ASBC, and the Master Brewers Association of America. And um, most brewers uh, back then and today uh, belong to those technical organizations. And, and you know, there's a fair amount of sharing of, of knowledge and, and of uh, best practices. Uh, the Brewers Association in Colorado has done a lot to also uh, foster that. And I, I was on the board for over 30 years. Um, and so brewers got along. I mean, I could call up Coors or Anheuser-Busch or... Uh, less so Miller at the time, but um, you know, back in the huh. late late seventies, early eighties, if I you know needed some advice or some help, um, they would you know they'd answer the phone and and uh, try to help out. And uh, you know, Fritz Maytag at Anchor, um, we we were down there fairly often, and I, I bought equipment from them and mm-hmm. uh, stainless pipe and uh, old bottle fillers and um, things like that. So um, yeah, they were they were friendly to the the upstart brewers. I mean, today we've got I don't know, eight thousand 
small brewers, and yeah. I don't know all of them, but back in, in that era, I knew pretty much all the brewery owners. Um, you know, we would go to the annual Brewers Association convention, and there would be, you know, not very many brewers there, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd take my wife, and, and, you know, we got to be friends with a, a lot of brewery owners through those kind of associations. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll get into our third beer here. We'll hop forward. Do you, do you like, do you like that uh-huh. metaphor there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's quite a bit talk. Before we do this real quick, I've noticed pale ale on, let's see, friends, the friends TV show, uh, a couple Adam Sandler movies. That's an intentional, I assume you, you product um, placement or do they no, just use your stuff? No, they, they use our stuff. So occasionally so we've, cool. we've, uh, you know, given beer for a party or something for the cast or whatever, uh-huh. but yeah, we don't, um, we don't pay the typical product placement kind yeah. of things. Uh, we, you know, we, we give beer. That's neat. That's, I, just, I just had to mention that. Um, so are, are you drinking a pillow? I am. Drinking the classic Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I'm assuming this is the first beer you brewed. Is that correct? Uh, it was the second beer I brewed. Oh. Uh, the the first beer I brewed up, we didn't sell, and we had no intention of selling. So I brewed five barrels of stout. Um, the first day we uh, fired equipment up, which was November 15, 1980, and we brewed Pale Ale a couple days later. Um, and, and as home brewers, I, yeah, I liked stout, and and um, so we had no intention of selling it, and we figured, well, let's do something that's dark and we'll hide any sins we have any mistakes we make mm-hmm. so we made a you know a robust uh, stout and we've made that same recipe now every time we've commissioned a new uh, brew house so we brewed it when we um, built out here on 20th street the first time and we added the second brew house we brewed it when we uh, started up in north carolina we brewed the same same original really? recipe that i brewed uh, batch one i mean it's kind of miraculous that the second beer you made has you know well, we, you'd think like you'd have to go through like dozens before you kind of find the one that, that catches. We, we did well. We we went through. Uh, we didn't sell the first uh, brew of pale ale. We dumped ten batches or eleven batches. Um, okay. Um, but we knew the the beer we wanted to produce from uh, our our homebrew trial. So we started homebrewing our pale ale, which was going to be our flagship, um, back. Um, uh, almost a year before we started commercial brewing and we would brew uh, once a week and mm-hmm. do a test batch and um, you know alter the hops or alter the yeast or you know we were trying to hone in on the recipe and then we, we we got a recipe we liked then we had to scale it up to 10 barrels and and that's where we struggled uh, initially and it was really a, a fairly simple um, problem we were having but we didn't realize it at the time our, our, our yeasts uh, needed more oxygen than we were giving it during the the wort aeration phase which is right when the yeast is pitched into the fermenter Mm -hmm. and we had an open cooler and the wort would trickle down the outside we figured that was plenty of oxygen turned out it wasn't enough and the fix was uh, simple enough that rather than pumping in the bottom of the of the fermenter to fill it we would shoot into the top of the fermenter and and uh, through a, a little fishtail fan uh, we made, and so the wort would get a lot more oxygen on its way into the fermenter, right. and that was the solution, and then our fermentations took off, and everything was, was good. And uh, the previous 10 batches, they weren't bad, but they were different than each other because right. we were not adequately giving our yeast uh, enough oxygen. It, it, the fermentations would slow down, and they, they wouldn't finish up quite the same batch after batch, and we didn't want to sell any beer until we knew we could make the same beer batch right. after batch. Um, all right, let's get into the uh, into the future a little bit. Uh, first, Byron, what what did you, did you pour? 
here. So this is uh, an Humble Sea Brewing Company. Are you familiar okay. with them? Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the Sand Dollar Lot. This is a double hazy New England IPA. My wife's from Santa Cruz, grew up with, with the boys. Um, and we invested when they were in, you know, when they were coming out of the garage, um, like, like you said, you kind of, you know, friends and family. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were early investors in, in, in that brewery and, and they're, they're turning out some fan, fantastic stuff. I mean, they're super trendy. Um, you know, their, their, their hazy beers are really good. In fact, Nick Pav, Pavlina, uh, is the head brewer owner. He went to Chico state mm -hmm. and obviously he was inspired by a lot of your stuff. So. I'm sure a lot of these new these new guys on the block were big Sierra Nevada guys and probably, you know, went into brewing because of because of that. How how are you with, with flattery or people that come up to you and say, you know, you inspired me to, to do this or that? Does, that, um, that must feel great or you little you little No, it's it's uh, you know, I've been around a long time and for this industry, I mean I've yeah. I've seen it go from nothing to you know, where it is today. So um, I, I'm sure i've i've uh, influenced um, yeah. quite a few people over the years um so it's it's fun actually i was uh, i i spoke at uc davis um uh, for the last i don't know 20 years um give a talk to to the students there in the brewing program did or, you do that every year um, i i did it i was doing it three times a year oh, wow. uh, every quarter is Charlie um, still doing it as well? Uh, Charlie retired. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So Charlie works for us now. He's our employee. So we he retired from UC Davis, and he's he's our uh, <laughs> senior technical advisor. So he's worked for us yeah, now great. for three years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Charlie's great. Um, and so I started doing. Um, well, he came to visit me right when he moved to the U.S. when he took over from Michael Lewis. Um, so I mean, UC Davis for for me back uh, when I was starting was a, a huge uh, um, influencer in that there was a brewing program, there was hmm. a brewing library, and you know a lot of the books and periodicals weren't available anywhere else. I mean, again, no wow. internet, so you couldn't find these articles or these papers. Um, they had them in their library at Davis, um, and there was a number of grad students and and um, you know brewing professionals that I could um, chat with and, and pick mm -hmm. their brains and so uh, it was a real asset for us to be able to you know drive down to Davis and spend the day and right. and um, so we, we had um, yeah a, a, a lot of learnings from there speaking of a uh, uh, higher education or college um, I uh, tell me if this is true someone told me yesterday that you were pretty involved in the um, free community college throughout California is, is that um, right. I, I, I was way back. I used to volunteer teach uh, actually brewing and, and bike repair. Um, but I don't know if that's what you're. Okay. No, someone now. said like you had been a big part. You know how there's like a new, new bill was passed oh, at community college is free. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, we did that. No. So my wife and I, yeah, we donated. <laughs> uh, that's what you're talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we covered, uh, uh, gave them enough money to pay for, um, um, half of the tuition for all the students. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it was a few years ago. It's amazing. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the junior college system was so helpful to us, and, right. and yeah. I said, my wife and I both went there. Our, our three kids went to Butte before um, transferring uh, to Chico State, and um, when I decided to open the brewery, I went back to Butte and started studying welding and refrigeration repair and electrical wiring and um, so I, I availed myself of, uh, of a lot of what they were, were doing out at the, at the new campus. At the what time. other um, types of philanthropy are you into or, or charities or anything? Uh, 
Oh, uh, a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, education um, in, in in the environment. Both we're we're uh, we do a lot with. I'm sit sit on a couple river boards, Western Rivers and uh, River Partners here in Chico, um, and we're involved with say with a fair amount of education kind of things. Uh, the brewing department at UC Davis. Matter of fact, we the um, laboratory is named after us. We we made a, a big grant to them for mm-hmm. for the brewing program. So how do you feel about uh, the environment going into the future? Are you optimistic that we're going to cur- curb this uh, uh, trajectory? Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm yeah. not sure optimistic is the right word. Yeah, yeah. Hope is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the industry, right? Obviously, I think that we see the, the new trends here. You mentioned the seltzers. Um, we talked about kombucha. Um, what were you, yeah, what were yeah, you asking I was just going to say, what, what's, what's next? I mean, one thing I love about the craft scene now is that you have a lot of breweries that are sort of pushing the limits, mm-hmm. which is amazing um, for the most part. Some things are like, eh, yeah. you, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't really drink that. People are doing smoothie beers. Oh, and, really? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, the seltzers, I'm not, the, I'm not a massive fan no, of I seltzers. Like, I, I can't um, stand truly and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, obviously we got, you know, we got the hard teas. So aside from that, is there... I mean, where else do you see it kind of evolving? Well, I, you know, I, I, whether it's the consumer pushing the brewers or the brewers pushing the consumers, uh, there's some both uh, happening. I think, hmm. um, you know, I, I, you know, I hope there's always a place for great beers, and uh, I mean, we're beer brewers at heart. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, kombucha was a uh, interesting um, tangent for us that uh, involved. Uh, know both our our artistic side of you know putting together flavors and you know herbs and spices and fruit and um, as well as managing the fermentation and um, so it was one of those beverages that um, you know intrigued me and our team and everybody uh, sort of jumped on board and and I think we did a a great job of of producing it so we're um, say we're constantly experimenting and we're pushing Mm -hmm. the boundaries out in all different ways in our R&D program what's going to be the next big trend that's a good question I I don't know that I have that answer I think you know seltzers will be around for a while Mm. Um, you know they didn't come and go like uh, the alcoholic you know hard root beer was a a thing for a a little bit well well well, Zima was the original seltzer right Zima was (laughs) or is that like a malt liquor maybe I think yeah, they were they were bordering on yeah. sort of where the seltzers are back then. Yeah. I mean, they de- decolored and um, you know. These kids right. don't know about Zima. Okay. Yeah. Aside from the production side of things, what about the delivery? So you're sitting here at a, a very innovative tap room, right? <laughs> where it's it's a self pour system, mm-hmm. and I would say ninety percent of because I, I I pick up a lot of a lot of beer from self distributed spots, um, stuff that you can't get in a, you can't get in Chico. Obviously, that's a, that's a, a big concept aside from our self-pour 90% of the people that that we interact with they like the self-pour concept but we do get a couple you know few that self-pour they they you know they're they haven't had a good experience at the mm-hmm. self-pour tap room so what's kind of I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are because the main qualm about self-pour is that you're losing the human interaction right and I love the human interaction I love that, but I also love not having to wait for a beer and being able to sample mm-hmm. all kinds of beers because, again, the, the industry is evolving, right? They're put, they're pushing the boundaries. So 
I don't know if I'm going to like this, right. you know, Saison or, you know, this barrel-aged stout, but I can try a couple few ounces before I commit to a yeah. full pour. I think it's a you know intriguing concept and a great concept. I, I went to uh, the very first one, uh, self-pour I went to was many, many years ago. I want to say it was in Philadelphia, but I don't remember for sure what city it was, somewhere in the east. Um, and they had them at the tables. Um, and you had a more limited selection, but um, you know it was a credit card swipe, and you got mm-hmm. X amount of updates. And it was probably beers. a long draw system. Yeah, it was a long from, draw system. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, I don't know if that concept's still going or not, but um, I haven't seen that around. Yeah. But I know I think this is a great idea, and, and uh, it does. You know, it allows. You know, they're socializing that it happens at the taps as well. Um, there, there really is. Yeah. There really is. I, I guess um, just going back to like why we kind of created this concept is we we just we love craft right and we just chico has been you know five ten years behind trendier Mm. you know cities san diego bend you know boulder and so we just we thought it would be this this concept would be great in terms of introducing new things to the community Mm -hmm. because you don't see a lot of this stuff you know and there's no other bar in town really that has humble sea or some of these other beers um but we'll always have that Pell as a as a set handle, you know, because that's that's my favorite beer to this day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that you, you bring up a, a challenge that our industry is facing, um, and you know, as consolidation has happened, um, you know, primarily in in the wholesale and retail tiers. So the, you know, the big grocery chains have gotten bigger. The wholesalers have gotten larger. Their you know books are fuller. Um, it, it's become increasingly difficult for a small brewer to get distribution and to get uh, good distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, having you know people like you who are fans going and, and seeking those beers out allows them to you know have an avenue to, to sell their beer outside their their home market. Um, and California is one of the states that has. Uh, decent uh, alcohol control laws for brewers to be able to self-distribute. Many states can't do that, right. and so we can't self-distribute in North Carolina, for example. We have to go to a distributor. Um, but in Chico, we still distribute our, you know, hmm. ourselves. Um, yes, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> well, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have survived if we didn't do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was uh, not enough margin without self-distribution early on for us to survive and right. we we would have gone out of business if we were forced to turn the beer over to a beer distributor day one yeah what um so all the non-beer items aside what are the more recent beer trends i assume it's the doubles and the hazies yeah i mean it seems like it's going both directions so uh, higher alcohol um <laughs> ipas uh, doubles and triples are are doing well um and um, you know, moderate alcohol ones. I mean, a lot of people say they they you know want to drink lighter, but and you, you see them, they look at this one's four and a half or five percent, and that one's seven. Eh, same price. I'm going for the seven. So a lot of people. So my brain some, works. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, sometimes uh, that, that's what uh, makes the decision. Um, but you know, there's also time when you want to you know have more than a couple of beers, and, and a lower right. alcohol beer makes sense. So do you do you see more of like a light beer boom kind of coming, or do you think uh, it's I don't happening? know if there's a, a a light beer boom coming? But yeah. I, I see that 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 part of the craft world's going to stay. So there'll be a, a, a lower alcohol mm-hmm. percentage. But you know, hops and IPA are are you know what craft's all about still. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that style or. IPA styles are 
I think 70% of the volume or something. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty shocking um, how much people have gravitated to, to hops. Um, you know, we were one of the early hoppy beers, and, and we got bagged on for being too hoppy. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, seemingly people <laughs> have no gotten, um, you know, so familiar with hops that they can't get enough. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, if, if you look at some of the, the new IPAs, uh, the hazies, and, and some of the big ones that we're brewing, I mean, we're using three pounds a barrel or more of hops. Um, which the the average when I first started commercially brewing the U.S. average usage of hops per barrel was 0.22 pounds. Wow! Um, and now you're using three. And we make beers today that use three. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, we've always been closer to a pound per barrel overall. Okay. Um, but um, you know, hazy little thing and big little thing. You know, those are in the three pound or more uh, per barrel range. I really want to thank you for those two beers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially big little thing being eight ninety nine to six packs. Yeah. Uh, it's just so funny. Only, only in Chico, it's not. Like, well, it's right, not right, right. I'm just saying it's like the same price. It's nine percent. Um, it's so funny. Like you know, I think about Bigfoot back in you know 1998 and how kind of specialized it was, or like it came in at nine point two percent or ten percent. It was like this is insane, and it's. Ten really it was at kind 11 of at, in the beginning, right? It's the norm. Uh, now. It, it it varied around. It was around ten, but yeah, uh, um, it's so normal now for a beer to be yeah. up around there. Yeah, I mean, we started brewing Bigfoot in in 1982, um, so it's been around for you know nearly 40 years. I I got a question. Yeah, Mark. This is this is just about. Uh, is it Kavik Kavik? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Kavik. Okay. Do you are you brewing any beers with that yeast? We we've played with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we've got uh we we have our own yeast specialists uh, in the house and we've we've used lots and lots of different cultures and um it's, and that's just a that's just a yeast that ferments super fast, right? Very warm and super fast, yeah. Okay. Yeah, cuz I'm seeing a lot of I'm seeing a lot more beers with that and to me it just it's a little earthy for me yeah it's got an interesting flavor component you know brewers have uh, i guess have touted it because it uh, it does increase your brewery's capacity uh you know your fermenter residence time goes way down and and so you can crank a lot more beer through the operation but it does have some dis- distinctive characters that yeah. not everybody might love i mean from a production side it's nice to have that beer finish that fast right, right? You, you got more tank space yep um, I, I guess the last. The, talking about. Uh, I guess the last question, I I, question that I want to ask yeah. before Derek kind of finishes off is: so, I noticed you changed the, on the logo. You changed it. You guys are family owned, operated, mm-hmm. and argued over. Mm-hmm. Is 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 the future still to keep this thing family owned? Hopefully, um, you know it's a it's a challenging world and a challenging industry. But um, mm-hmm. you know we've got to um, you know as long as uh, the next generation is interested in and wants to do it, then. Uh, we'll try. I mean, a lot of gratitude. Thank you for what you've done for the community. Thanks. For you know, introducing the best beer in the in the world to to our community and, and, and choosing us as your spot to you know produce it. So, yeah, I think all most of us when when whenever we move to different cities, go to different cities, we take this beer with mm-hmm. us. It's like it's the first thing I look for. It. I almost won't order another beer if I'm if I'm in another town. Um, where, so where. Would you like the company to go in the next five years, and and where would where where do you want to? What direction would you like to go personally? Well, I'm trying to uh, work less. 
Okay. So that's been a, a, a goal. So I'm, I'm down to. How's that going? Uh, yeah, some weeks it's all right. Some weeks <laughs> I work. work <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was working today. I'm going to go home and uh, I got meetings. Uh, um, I try to take Mondays and Fridays off now, but I, I don't always do that. Um, but that's my, my hope. Um, I've got a great CEO and leadership team. And, and um, so I'm trying to, to do the stuff I want to do more and the mm-hmm. stuff I don't want to do less. Um, so right now I'm involved in some projects. Uh, we're putting in some new can filling equipment and uh, putting in a um, uh, R&D can line this week. Uh, we actually just installed it and just commissioning it right now. Um, so we're, we're, we're working on stuff like that and I, I like to get my hands dirty in that. So I, I, mm. I help in projects. They, some of my folks may think I hinder, but anyway, I try to help. Um, <laughs> I don't, I bet they don't think that. Um, <laughs> But you know, I'm I'm getting I'm not uh, spring chicken anymore, so I, I want to be able to ride my bike and you're looking young travel. still. Gotta yeah. say, yeah, six sixty-six. Um, but the bike riding but, must help. Yep, I try to get out my bike three or four days a week, and um, awesome. yep, stay stay a little bit uh, fit. And uh, I built a wood shop, so I'm gonna play more and building stuff. I used to do a bit of woodworking way back, and. I have a, a, a metal shop as well at my house, so I've got you know welder and lathe and that kind of stuff. So, well, if you I, need any black yeah. walnut, my business partner said uh, this is all is the same it? tree. He's fifth generation, and they they bought that property in the late 1800s. Huh. So he's got a lot of black walnut. If you're interested, I I just milled some black walnut. I have a a, a big mill as well, oh, so nice. I I just uh, slabbed some. Not this nearly this big though. <laughs> um, just did that last week. Yeah, all these tables are from the same tree. Very cool. Can you um can you can you share you know kind of your vision for for the company here in the next five years or so or is that well top secret? no it, no it's not top secret <laughs> no I mean hopefully we can continue to you know innovate and be you know competitive in the craft scene and and make sure we're uh, producing beers that people want to drink or beverages that people want to drink mm-hmm. and and so uh, you know, just trying to make sure we're relevant um, you know we we're now the oldest craft brewery in the u.s still surviving um i mentioned uh, that those early years from um 78 to 81 six six breweries opened up and um five of them have closed um so we're the last one from that era that's that's still around um and there's a reason for that yeah many others came and went so i mean this industry is is, uh you know evolved and changed dramatically since i started um but it's it's not a simple or easy business it's the barriers to entry are are much lower today than they were when i started i mean now there's you know the internet tons of knowledge tons of uh, of consumer interest um there's uh you know in just about every community now that wasn't the case back when I started so it was you know it's been a lot of years of educating people about beer and, and craft beer and what the differences are and and I think you know the, the brewers have have come a long way uh, in raising their game um, again back when I started there were a lot of brewers not making the best beer and that was the downfall of, mm-hmm. of a number of them um, today you know, making great beer is really table stakes to enter the marketplace. You better make great beer, um, yeah. but you also have to innovate and, and um, make sure that you're you're relevant to the changing consumer because consumers changing really rapidly now. Right. Yeah. We're seeing that here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait for the day that we have 24 Sierra Nevadas on tap. Hopefully, we can do that at some point. It'll be we, fun. We, yeah, we, we we've done. Uh, I think you might talk to Terrence. I want to say we did uh, one account with over 50 different beers. Really? Yeah. Wow. Ken, this is 
a, 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 an honor. Yeah, well, thank I, you so I've much. enjoyed myself. Thank you guys, and good luck. And I'll I'll come on in and, and have a beer one night with you. Yeah, can't wait. Come on back on the podcast too. There's yeah. plenty more to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Be happy to. <laughs>